Hi guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and you're listening to Specify, the Building Materials Innovation Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to help the entrepreneurs and the innovators who are making a positive difference in the building materials, coatings, and construction industry. Each episode, we'll tap leaders and experts from inside and outside the industry to provide the mental tools, skills, and insights to make an impact. Today's guest is Bob Chalker, who's the CEO of NACE International, the Corrosion Society. NACE serves nearly 36,000 members in over 130 countries and is recognized globally as the premier authority for corrosion control solution. Bob is an accomplished executive leader who's committed to excellence and has proven uh, himself with a successful career in both the corporate and the nonprofit area. Bob, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you. And uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And I, I look forward to our conversation. Absolutely. Can you tell everyone more about your background? I can. So you did a, you did a great job for the introduction. I've, I've been with NASA. It's going, it's going to be nine years next month. It's hard to believe time's gone by that fast. But prior to coming to NACE, I spent six or seven years with the Society of Automotive Engineers in the American Society for Quality. And if you go back a little bit further, I spent over 23 years in the auto industry working in the supply base. So a little diverse background, but I've had the benefit of working for some great companies and some really great bosses along the way that have taught me a lot. And a lot of that I'm hopefully bringing to bear here at NACE in a meaningful way. So my my background's a little bit diverse. Interesting, one of the things I learned about that is, in the end, maybe the technologies changes, the product changes, but often the challenges and the opportunities remain the same. So whether you're selling auto parts or designing cars or dealing with corrosion and some of the challenges we have. So it seems to all come together to work. Very nice. So how did you sort of originally get into the auto industry? Well, mine was really early. So I grew up in, a, in an automotive town. Okay. In fact, it's one that's in the news right now because I grew up about four miles from the General Motors Lordstown plant, which mm. they just announced they were closing. But so where I came from, you either worked for a company for Lordstown or you worked for one of the suppliers, which was Packard Electric. And I went to school to be an engineer. I went to the University of Cincinnati. They had a co-op program. So as I got ready to start my look for my first co-op job, it was a natural to go and look for something with one of those two companies. And I ended up at Packard Electric and spent, uh, as I said, 23 years there in different roles, everything from designing and engineering to out on the plant floor as an afternoon turn foreman to in their sales and technical office working with customers. So it gave me a really broad understanding of some of the challenges. But it was it was almost a given from the beginning that I would find myself in the automotive industry. Oh, makes sense. I guess with that uh, big industry there. Now, what what prompted you from going from sort of the the corporate side to the nonprofit side? An executive recruiter. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I had this is actually an interesting story. So I was working. I was a director of sales for Del, for Packard Electric. It, its name had changed to Delphi Corporation by that point. And we had, were going after a really large piece of business with a, one of the big automotive manufacturers. And 
it looked really good. It's we were going to win it. I was co-leading the team with another guy who had the engineering side. And on Wednesday before Christmas, we had been told that the business would most likely be ours. Thursday after Christmas, we got a phone call from the purchasing person that said, hey, we got a problem. Your biggest competitor, happened to be a Japanese company, mm-hmm. was in here yesterday and they cut a heck of a deal. You need to get some executives up here as quickly as possible to, to deal with this or to their offices because you're going to lose this business. So we called a few folks, particularly the president of the company. And this was I tell this story because this was such a learning lesson about culture for me and the role of a CEO. So this guy's the president of the division, big piece of business is on the line. Call him to say, look, can you come up? It was a four-hour drive from where he was located to where we needed him. And he said, you know, Bob, he said, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. That's, that's what we hire you for. You go close the deal. Oof. And we, yeah, and we lost the deal. Now, some things, I get that because there's learning in that. There's opportunity. And, and there, as a boss, you have to decide when you intervene and when you don't. You have to also know that you do hire people to do their jobs. And not every monkey can land on the back of the CEO or the boss. On the other hand, I wasn't a person prone to doing that. I think that's the only time I ever did that. And it was a bit of a crisis situation. So we lost the business. And the day after we lost the business, I got a call from an executive recruiter. Mm -hmm. And truthfully, I probably never would have been looking. You talk about timing is everything. Mm -hmm. If another two weeks had gone by and I would have probably cooled down, I probably wouldn't have entertained the call because I really liked the company. It was a great company and things were good. Of course, it would have happened before. I probably wouldn't have taken the call, but timing's everything. And I had a really, really good conversation with the recruiter and said, let me think about it. Uh, A couple of weeks went by, he called me again. They set up a meeting. At the time, it was with the CEO of the Society of Automotive Engineers. And they were looking for somebody out of industry who really understood the automotive industry. And that gentleman and I hit it off and we spent really almost six months in discussions before I made the decision to leave. But now I'm going to give you a quick story of another boss I learned a lot from on the positive side. This was, yeah. this was a, the guy I worked for at Delphi at the time, the vice president of sales. I went into his office and I said, his name was George. I said, George, I got, a, I got something I got to talk to you about. And I said, I told him that this offer had been made, an opportunity, and we had a good discussion about it. And he looks at me and he says, Bob, as your friend and mentor, I'm going to tell you that you need to take this position. It's right for you and it makes sense and it's a great opportunity. It was a promotion and all that. But he said, as your boss, I don't want you to know I'm going to fight like hell to keep you. (laughs) And there was another lesson there that said, as a boss, you got to take care of your people and you got to do what's right by them first and then what's right by the company. So sorry for a long story, but Boy, there was a lot of learnings in that entire event that has come to bear today. So, and really sort of set the tone for moving me into the not-for-profit world and into the what I'll call more the mission-based business activity. Yeah, what drew you into uh, corrosion? I mean, you went from autom- automotives to to corrosion. What sort of prompted that jump? So, I was with the Society of Automotive Engineers, and I was director of sales and marketing had an opportunity to go to American Society for Quality for to run their global activities, everything outside the U.S. Yeah, I was there about two years. And again, an executive recruiter 
called in the CEO position at NACE had opened up and they were looking for candidates. And I, and I felt I could do and do well. And so I put my name in the hat uh, with that and one or two other opportunities that were sort of open at the same time. And they made the selection to select me. So it wasn't I, like most people in the corrosion industry, very few of us grew up saying, gee, I want to be a corrosion professional when I grow up. You know, that's not like it doesn't have the same allure as an astronaut or a doctor or, or some of the others, unless your family's in it, because we do have quite a few second and third generation people. But it wasn't, I have to be honest, it wasn't like I sat there and said, boy, this is where I wanted to go. Yeah. So once I started to explore it, I recognized all the important work that was being done and how often corrosion has such a negative effect on our society, whether it's cost or even accidents and, and dangerous things happening out there that it really connected as I started to do the homework that the work that the members of NACE do really is important to our society and it, it does protect people and and our assets so it quickly didn't take me long to have that passion which is important to me i can't, I can't just go do a job for the money i i gotta have a connection to what they're doing and as we went through the interview process the connection was really there from my side and obviously from the board's side so we mentioned your intro that NACE is in over 130 countries, 6,000 members. I mean, it's, it's a truly global organization. Like what's, what's involved with running an organization that's so diverse? One thing's involved is every day is just a little bit different. So, and the other is you will never have an eight to five day again. Uh, <laughs> part of that is that global, the globalization, right? You, you really literally could do business 24-7, seven days a week. Because the customers are working, the members are working in that time frame. And as I said, you, the diversity of the activity, the things that you can be involved in are really great. One of the big things is you've got to have a, an outstanding team. We have offices located around the world with really good people that support our activities and make sure that we're doing the right things locally. We have a great staff back here that is in tune with what's happening. You've got to be listening all the time because what's right for one part of the world or for one industry or, or one group of people may or may not be what's right for the other group. So you spend a lot of time helping work through differences, difference in opinions, getting people on the same page. It's, it's a big part of it. NACE being a volunteer membership organization, we have boards and committees and, and groups of people that we have to really work with to keep informed, but also to help them see the big picture and help them make really good decisions for our programs, our products, and our services. So it, that was one of the big differences for me coming from the for-profit to the not-for-profit world. In the for-profit world, not the decision-making is easy, but it was better aligned in the sense of, does this make money for the company or doesn't it? Mm -hmm. In this world, you're mission-driven. So we call it the dual bottom line. You still have to be financially and fiscally responsible. You can't just go spend money you don't have. You got to pay attention to the bottom line. But at the same time, you've got this mission that you need to fulfill that is more important than just the financials. And so those sometimes can be in conflict with each other. So you spend a lot of time really with a very complex business plan, making sure it works for as many of your constituents as you can you can make it work for. Would that be, uh, just describe the complexity of it, be one of your biggest challenges? 
It definitely is one of the biggest challenges. And the other thing for us is, the, is how fast technology is changing, mm. especially the technology. And it gets us on, on two folds. One is you have the technology of the industry, mm-hmm. what's happening in the coatings industry or the corrosion prevention industry and the technologies that our members and customers are using. But then you have the technologies that we use. So we're the education business. Mm-hmm. We educate people about technology. and We're in the networking business. But if you think about how the fourth industrial revolution that's often referred to, how fast digitalization has been happening and autonomous vehicles and drones and artificial intelligence and the Internet of Things and all of these things are coming at us. How do we stay up and stay ahead of the technology game and use the right technology at the right time? It's not good to just use technology for technology's sake if your customers aren't ready for it. So you got to find that right balance. And that's probably that and the complexity that I talked about are two of the, the challenges that we spend the most time working on. Yeah. So what sort of uh, technologies that, that are you're working with right now that are helping you stay on the uh, sort of the cutting edge of what the members are looking for? So distance learning is a big one. Mm-hmm. We traditionally did education just like most of us got educated. It was in a classroom setting, an instructor, 15 to 20 people in a room, spend several hours a day in that room learning. And that is changing dramatically and what's expected. Companies don't want to put their people on airplane and travel into classrooms anymore. The truth is people don't want to be away from their families if they don't need to be or their activities or their life or their jobs for that matter. So the idea of distance learning and how you deliver education to them where they're located and not require them to travel to where you're located. And so we, we're spending a lot of time and money understanding that technology and, and actually investing in delivering courses that way. We, our board of directors made a commitment that 50% of all of our development effort will go into distance learning or distributed education, whatever term you want to say. Mm-hmm. So that's one. The other thing that we see coming down the pike that's going to have a big impact, again, we're about education and knowledge. So how will artificial intelligence impact what we refer to as curating the body of knowledge? So so NACE has a ton of information in our library, in our library or computer disks or computer memory, but we have a library. If you think of a library, and if it's just full of books and you don't have a good means to get the information out to the user, it's useless. So you need to have a really good way of doing that. But the demand is faster and faster and faster. So if you think about it, if you go to Amazon today to buy a book and you type in, you instantaneously get the book and nine out of 10 times, it's smarter than you are, right? You you put in, I can't quite remember the name of that book, but it was something about X, Y, Z. And you type that in and it comes up with the right answer better than you can come up with it. Mm -hmm. We're not there yet. We don't have Amazon capability to to do that technology invest, but we're moving quickly that way so that we're able to deliver to the customer, to the member what they want, even before they can totally articulate what it is. So we just, we just went through a a redesign of our website. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that's happening in our industry more and more people from different industries are coming to us. And there are people who never thought about corrosion as a technology or something that they can 
manage or deal with or address. Uh, it was a fact of life or it wasn't even on their radar screen. So now these people are coming to us and they want to learn about it. Our website, what we how we were operating before, you almost had to be inside the organization sort of like initiated to be able to reach us because we had all these acronyms and yeah. terminology and structures. And so if you didn't know something about us and how it works and you came to our website, you'd be lost. So we just got done redesigning the website so that the uninitiated can approach us and find what they're looking for more effectively. But we have more to go on that. That's where that artificial intelligence part of curation of technology becomes important. The website is just the outer facing of it. You've got the inner bowels that you have to get right to. So all of those things are, those are just a couple of the things that are coming into play for us. But we see, we see a lot more coming down the pike as well. The equipment and the materials being used in our industry and being able to teach those to the students and make sure we're teaching what industry is using today. So when a student gets done with our course, they're adequately prepared to go to work and making sure that we're not teaching old technology or frankly, too far in the future technology, but finding yeah. that balance. Huh, that's very interesting. Now you talked about your website. How about social media and outreach? Because I know like not to talk about Nate's particularly, but just I, I just noticed there's very few people in the corrosion industry, like independently, that are on social media in a in a sort of active way. Do you find that or is, is that just something I'm experiencing? So it's growing. Let's put it that way. We and I don't remember the exact numbers right now off the top of my head. I could probably go and look it up because it's constantly increasing. But if you go to our LinkedIn page, there's we have over fifteen thousand people tied uh-huh. into the LinkedIn page. Same with the Facebook yeah. page. So we're seeing it grow quickly. So much so that we are actually, we have a manager of social media. We have a person whose full-time job is managing our presence on social media and being there to make sure questions get answered. We move towards, if one of our members or customers puts something on the NACE Facebook page, yeah. our goal is within a very, very short time period, they're getting an answer back. They're getting uh. a response. So it's becoming more and more a primary way of for NACE to communicate with our members. I do agree there aren't a lot of companies yet that have embraced it. There's a few, mm-hmm. but most haven't. I honestly believe it may or may not be social media as we know it today because you've got this other pressure of privacy and, yeah. and government regulation and you know, how big is Facebook going to get or some of these companies that provide it. Will they be the next AT&T that gets split up somehow? Where bell system. I don't know about that. I do know online communication is going to be a core way that we communicate in the future. And so we are paying attention to it and dropping it and and trying to use it to better serve our members. It becomes even more important outside the U.S. It really becomes a core way Mm -hmm. for communication in many parts of the world. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Now, not going to the specific uh, coding technologies per se, but what are the high level technology level trends like when it comes to yeah. your members? So I, I see a couple of things coming down the pike. One for sure is self-healing materials, right? The ability mm-hmm. that a coding, if it gets damaged, that it will heal back over itself. That I think is coming and is going to come quicker and quicker and, and is going to be good for us. I, smart materials are the other thing. Mm-hmm. Materials that can tell us 
that there's been damage or corrosion or, or the coating's been armed in some way so that we can take action. We're already seeing a large use of sensors being placed either across pipelines or on bridges to, again, be able to measure the integrity of the asset and look for problems. Drones, the use of drones for inspection, why hang somebody off a bridge or off of a water tower or whatever and put them in a dangerous place when you can fly a drone up? And the technology that's being put into the cameras now is really, really top notch. So we're seeing all of those things start to come to play. It's going to, we really believe that in the future, the NACE member is going to need to do their work differently where for the last, I don't know, 65 years, their work was done by literally physically being on the asset and either walking the pipeline or hanging off the bridge and doing eye inspection, visual inspection, or putting a piece of equipment that they're holding in their hand to take measures or to do repairs. Those days are going to go quickly. There are There's companies out there who are developing robots that can paint a bridge or a offshore oil rig and not have human involved in it. But that means not that there will be less work because of that. I mean, that's one of the big debates, right? Are we going to be Mm -hmm. replaced by robots and where's human work going to go? We don't think it's going to eliminate it. What it's going to do is it's going to create new type of work and people are going to have to evolve and change and get gain new skills, which hopefully that's where NACE comes in. I heard a statistic. We actually had a futurist come and speak at our conference this past March, and he made a comment that something to the effect that 65% of the jobs that are in existence today didn't exist 30 years ago. Now, I, I won't vouch for the numbers. I have no way to research that. But just the idea, you think about the jobs that are here today and are growing. Yeah, a lot of them weren't there before. And old jobs have gone away. And that's going to be our reality. That's what technology is going to drive. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I like your assessment of things. Now, in the news, you see you know, things happening that cause bridges to fall and things to get neglected. And I know you do a lot of work to try to raise awareness on that. Can you tell us some, about some of the work you do there and some of the, sort of the things that are working and the things that, that need to sort of, sort of get better? Sure. So first of all, in my humble opinion, there's no excuse for any of our assets to fail because of corrosion. Mm-hmm. We have the technology to protect all of our assets. It's two issues. One is an awareness that this technology exists and, and the knowledge and the expertise exists to, to protect it. And the other is the willingness to do what it takes. I'll call it make the investment, but it's not always a financial investment make the investment to do things right the first time when it's first designed and built where you have the most impact, but then also to maintain it over time. And just just to give some examples, mm-hmm. amusement park industry. So mm-hmm. recently we have been engaging with the amusement park industry in a, in a big way. Without going into details, you don't have to look very far where they've had a couple catastrophic events that were been tied back to corrosion. That's an industry that a few people in it, particularly some of the big name organizations, really understood corrosion and they knew how to prevent it, how to put corrosion management plans in place and how to deal with it. But for a large part of that industry, they didn't even know what 
that it there was the way to control and prevent that. Mm. So we've been engaging with them on the education side. So one of the things we do is we work with other professional associations that serve other industries, like the industry that serves or the associations that serve the amusement park industry or the International Maritime Organization that serves the maritime industry, American Waterworks Association for the water industry. We work through these other organizations to educate their members that corrosion is something that is a fact of life. It can be dangerous, but you can manage it and you can actually prevent it if you do it right in the first place. Mm -hmm. The other place we're spending a lot of time is on Capitol Hill. So we invest heavily to educate and to have conversations with our congressional leaders so that they're making good decisions about our assets as a country. Large percentage of the assets that we use as, as a society are owned by either federal or state government, and the funding comes from the federal government. And it's unfortunate, but over time, a lot of very short-sighted decisions have been made, and either things aren't, again, built right in the first place, or the, most often they're not maintained. And so it's helping them understand that, hey, you need, if, I'm not going to debate whether or not the federal government or a state government should spend money on a bridge, building a new bridge or building a highway or, or a waterway. What I am going to argue is if you are going to do that, make sure you have a plan in place and the design is done right so that you don't have corrosion problems in the future. And our, our research shows that the return on investment is five to one to 50 to one. And that, that's actually based on some really good research from the U.S. Department of Defense that studied very closely the money they were spending on corrosion prevention or designing to prevent corrosion and then the maintenance and the return of the money that was saved and how those assets were able to last longer. They didn't have to go back and do as many repairs. So there's, there's good data behind this that says this is money well spent, but you got to have awareness of it. So we're, we're a big part of ours is communicating to people who don't know, and then also making sure that good decisions are made through the process. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You've been at the uh, NACE for, for a while. Was there a point where you sort of felt like you sort of turned the corner where you kind of understood things well enough that you were sort of approaching things more from the offensive than just trying to figure things out? Was there sort of a turning point? Because I know that corrosion is kind of a very big area and uh, it could be some learning involved. So yeah, there is a long learning curve. So I have a great benefit that I am surrounded by really, really qualified people that have been at this for a lot longer than I have both on staff and the members. So there was a lot of good coaching and, and a team around what I'm trying to do or what we're trying to do here. So the thing is an actual turning point, but I would argue is probably two years in Mm -hmm. where I started to feel very comfortable that, you know what, I can play a role in this. Now, I don't need to turn to somebody else to have these conversations. Mm -hmm. The experience, the knowledge, the expertise is started to grow within me that I can carry on a legitimate, I like your word, offensive or conversation <laughs> and move the ball forward <laughs> in these things. But it did take a couple of years to really feel comfortable because it is complex and it is, it's very complex technology. Mm -hmm. A lot of people spend a lot of time doing research and being educated in this field. 
So I'm, I'm always careful and I'm always respectful of the, of the technical, ex- the depth of the technical expertise. So like everything, there's also the political side and the business side, where mm-hmm. I feel I'm much more comfortable in and, and have something to bring to the party. That makes sense. Now, I mean, you're dealing with a very large organization and you said communication's key and there's always lots of stuff happening. How do you keep yourself organized? What are your sort of top three habits or routines that sort of keep you on track and successful? Oh, great question. So I, one of them is you've got to be listening. It's a bit cliche, but God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. You have to be listening to what people are saying. And you have to have listening posts out there. I travel a lot. And good part of that travel is going to where our members and customers are and hearing and listening to what they have to say. So I think one of the things definitely is investing in your members, your customers, your suppliers, the industry to know what it is they're telling us and being willing to respond to that. And and I'm a big believer, you don't want a barrier or anybody between you and the customer, right? So Mm -hmm. some people say, well, I've got salespeople that go out there and have those conversations, or I have marketing people that have those conversations or market researchers. Those are all important and they can bring you good information. There's nothing like sitting down and having a conversation with the CEO of one of the companies in our industry or one of our coding inspectors who's out there working every day doing his job and hearing what they say is important to them and why they need to do it. So that, that's one habit that I really try to instill. I think the other is being willing to take risks. So when you've got a large organization with a lot of opinions and a lot of views and often in conflict, you can quickly become paralyzed. Because mm-hmm. if you really go under the mantle that I'm going to keep everybody happy, you're not going to get anything done. I, I sort of, coming out of the auto industry, there's an old famous quote from Henry Ford. Mm-hmm. If I would have given my customers what they wanted, I would have gone out and bred faster horses. Because yeah. that's what they wanted. They wanted to get from point A to point B faster. And so being able to take risk and try things and experiment and being willing to accept failure, that it's going to happen, but learn from it and, and encouraging an, uh, a culture where people are willing to take risk, that's another big one. And not always sitting back waiting until you have 100% consensus, but trusting your gut and being willing to say, you know what, I believe in this and we're going to give it a shot is, is something that i found important. And then I think the other is, is being able to sell your ideas and your thoughts. Communication, outward communication. So listening is a big part of it. But the other side of it is, can I intelligently, in a meaningful way, connect with my audience and help them understand what we're doing, why we're trying to do it, why it's important, and bring them along with the direction that we're going? I think it's incredibly important when you've got a large a large, diverse constituent. Very nice. Now, you said listening is an important one because I, I, I like that one. How do you sort of bring that in? Like you, you're, you're sitting down with people, talking to people all the time, listening. There's other people in your organization listening. How does it sort of come together in a meaningful way in your organization and, and turn into action steps? Because that's, that's what I always wonder. So... That's a great question. And that, that sometimes is the challenge. What we've done, and I, I think it's different for every organization, but what we've done that has, has worked for us. So we are all out there talking and, and we bring groups together periodically 
we have an executive coach that we work with here who's really helped us work through some of these things. And one of the things he really believes is you've got to make space for ideas and communication and things to be exchanged. So we all have meetings. And if you've got to meet every one of your meetings and your entire day is scheduled back to back to back, mm-hmm. and you don't leave any time for just dialogue or debate or communication back and forth, you don't have the opportunity to coalesce these into ideas. So one of the things we try to do is we try to make space and time. We'll put an idea on the table and let people kick it around. It, it'll come from what they've heard from the membership, from the clientele. It'll come from their own thoughts, from other staff members. But let's kick it around and see where we can get it to. About three years ago, we started on a process. We actually called it the Visions of NACE. So mm-hmm. it's sort of tying this all together. If you think about the technology that's changing, how important our corporate culture is, technology of our members and the products and services they sell changing. Well, how do we deal with this? So we sat down and over a number of years and started looking at what is the NACE of the future look like? What, what does NACE look like 10 years from now, mm. 15 years from now? And we started to build a framework and it was done initially with the staff, the higher level staff. And we literally had meetings that I wouldn't call the most structure we had was a very high level topic and very little after that. We had some rules and engagement that we believe in. And these, these discussions became pretty intense, always focused on the topic, never focused on the individual. But I'd be kidding to you if I told you everybody agreed. <laughs> we, started to work, we started to work through it. Um, even we, we, when I said lots of time, we spent lots of time together, days sometimes locked in a room. What does this look like? What does this look like? In the end, we came out with a, I'll call it a framework that we're not very creative on this stuff. So we just called it the visions of NACE and we presented it to some of our members to get their input and, and they liked it. There was a connection. And from there we presented it to our board of directors and it's, it's becoming embraced and it really is driving or setting the pathway to change everything we do. So we've got a team now that's looking at how we develop standards and improving our standards development process so that we can do them faster to market. That, that's a great example because mm-hmm. some of the feedback we got from our customers in these listening sessions was, Nace, you take forever to develop standards. By the time you get the standard out, the technology's gone. <laughs> Why are you so slow? There were some political concerns. I don't feel like my voice is being heard. Mm-hmm. So we took all of that. And we're working on standards development. We've got a model for our education program and what that'll look like in the future. Our publications activity, how our committees and boards will be organized. So really, literally every aspect of what we do, we don't have the answer in the end, but we have some really strong tenets and a framework to work within. And the only reason we don't have the answer for the end is because the technology is changing. So you could start out here today and think, well, that's my plan, but get down the road two years from now and find out, well, that wasn't a very good plan because technology moved on us, right? But to have some, like we know we want education delivered at the location of the customer. Mm -hmm. How that gets done, is it YouTube? Is it a private system? Maybe it's it's in their network instead of on our network. Maybe it's robots. I'm not sure. But that's going to change. 
it's not how it gets done, but recognizing what we want it to look like. We know we want to be the fastest to market in developing standards. And here are things we need to do to change that. So creating dialogue and space, but then getting it written down on paper so that people can see it, they can beat it up, they can debate it, and then buy into it, ultimately, that that's the direction we want to go. What do you love most about uh, what you do? What do I love most about what I do? The people, the, mm-hmm. the people, you know, and that, again, sounds a bit cliche, but one of the things that I found when I came to NACE there is no more passionate group of professionals who are passionate about what they do than this group of corrosion professionals. And, and it's funny when you laugh because it's corrosion, right? It's rust. Well, how, how, <laughs> when I tell people that who aren't in the initiated, who don't know our profession, yeah. their eyes sort of roll back in their head. Really? You got to watch rust? But the people who are in the field understand that they are providing a really, really valuable service. And one member in particular described it to me. He said, you know, in the same way that a doctor or a researcher is committed to fighting cancer in the human body, Mm. rust and corrosion is the cancer of the assets. I feel that same commitment. And and I don't see it that that it's a financial deal that I'm doing, but I am literally saving lives or the environment from the effects of corrosion. So you have that. And then I'll argue the staff that NACE has right now is the best group of people I've ever worked with, and I'd put them up against any organization. So when you've got a really strong staff team and you've got customers and members who are passionate about what they do, it makes it easy to go to work. Never boring, (laughs) but easy. (laughs) Very cool. Is there anything that I should have asked but didn't? Well... Maybe I will take a minute to just steal a thunder because I don't know who the, everybody is listening to this. But one of the big things we have going on right now, so we have entered into discussions for merging with another organization, SSPC. Yes. And so in our field, there are two major players in the corrosion prevention, NACE and SSPC. And for the most part, well, they're 70 years old. We're 75 years old. Yeah. We have sort of worked to serve the industry, sometimes in parallel, sometimes in cooperation, and more than once in competition with each other. But this industry has had these two associations. About two years ago, a couple of our member leaders were having a conversation and saying, you know, it just doesn't make sense that we're two separate organizations. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of good reasons, that we really should be one. And so we've entered in and to discussions around bringing the two organizations together to better serve the industry. This has been tried before. This will be the third time that the two have tried to do it. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the things that's interesting right now is you've got leadership on our side and leadership with the SSPC team that are really committed to doing what's right for the industry and setting aside the personal interests or maybe the interests of the two individual organizations Believing that if we do what's right for the industry, we'll all benefit. So those conversations are going really well. And I I just, I put it out there because I think for the listeners who are in our profession, in our field, I'd encourage them if they haven't, is to look into this and send us their feedback. On both our websites, you have the ability to provide feedback. And back to that listening post, we want to hear what they have to say about these discussions. But they are moving along well. And communication is strong, and, and we've started to lay a, 
more of the details of what bringing the two organizations together will look like and with the intent of getting to a final decision within the next 10 to 12 months. So, well, yeah, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan with what you guys are trying to do. Cause, um, you know, as being a sort of a, a coding manufacturer, I mean, having two different standards of surface prep and description and it's, it doesn't need to be that way. So. No, it does, you know, why do you have to carry two certifications? Why do you have to go to two conferences or take two different education courses on the same topic? Or like you said, yeah. two different standards. It, it doesn't, it shouldn't be that way. So I'm really excited about it. And I know Bill Worms, my counterpart at SSPC is as well. We see there's tremendous opportunity in this and we see it making just a much better use of our resources, people, money, et cetera. Why spend it building two programs that serve the same thing when if you just agree to one, you can use that to build other services or programs that the industry needs. So that right now, that's taking a lot of my time, but I'm also really excited about it and and it's moving along uh, really well. Perfect. Thank you for uh, being on the show, Bob, and thank you for all the great information. I appreciate it. Thank you for the time. I enjoy it. Look forward to hearing it. Thanks. So I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify. And I also want to thank the listeners specifically that are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, please forward it along and send me a note or drop me a comment if you have any feedback or suggestions. Talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.